Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1351, entitled No Fear. Our podcast title is Serial Potters. I am Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. And there we go with Marco Beltrami's oh, shiversome track, The Final Axe, which is from Fear Street Part 2, and that is set in 1978. Yes, correct. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> We've been talking about um, that. It's a, a trilogy that's dropped on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a horror series, and it is great. I'm really enjoying it. All yeah, right. absolutely. <laughs> but before we go there quite yet to that camp by the woods, is there a lake as well? I can't remember. There's got to be. There's, for the canoeing and all the other camp things that you do. Yeah, even if there's actually no sign of a lake there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I wanted to talk about the Emmy nominations which have come out, and this is the uh, the 2021 Emmy Awards. Mm-hmm. That's the 73rd edition, being done under exceptionally difficult circumstances all round. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the show must go on. And I think probably the salient thing about this for Zero G is not only is that there are lots of streaming shows, but there's lots of genre shows Mm -hmm. in the noms. Now, I'm not going to go through them all because they're nominations and, you know, many are chosen – (laughs) <laughs> and just looking at the outstanding comedy series, I see that Cobra Kai 3 has been. <laughs> I love that. Gosh, who'd have thought way back in the day that that little film, The Karate Kid, would one day be spawning, I think, what started out as a YouTube series and all the way to the Emmys. Yeah. What a journey. Yeah, it's getting in for its chop. <laughs> I don't think much of its chances. It's up against a good lineup and it hasn't garnered any other noms for the actors and the director mm. and the and the writers. That's usually a kind of an indication. Yeah. yeah. Still, uh, nominated for outstanding drama are four, count them, four science fiction series, including The Handmaid's Tale, Lovecraft Country, Mm. The Boys and The Mandalorian. All things we've loved here on Zero G. We, us and the Emmy Committee, we agree. And there are two historical series as well, The Outrageous Bridgerton and The Mm -hmm. Crown. They were also nominated. Love a period drama. And in terms of the the wet wear (laughs) (laughs) or the cattle, Jonathan Majors and Journey Smollett were nommed for Best Drama Actor and Actress for Lovecraft Country, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and Michael K. Williams, as Supporting Actor. Elizabeth Moss gets a well-deserved bonnet for Handmaids, of course. Of course. With West Wing's Bradley Whitford and Black Widow's O.T. Fagbany getting mm. gongs. 
aspirational for aspiration supporting mm-hmm. actors in the dystopia that everyone loves to hate, The Handmaid's Tale, as long with Madeline Brewer, Anne Dowd and Max Mingella. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Olivia Coleman and Emma Corrin have also been nominated as actors for The Crown. These are supporting ones. We've aspirations for supporting tiaras for Gillian Anderson, Helena Bonham Carter and Emerald Fennell. Wow, that's a lot of crown representation right there. Turns out the royals can still uh, put on a good show. Everyone a jewel. (laughs) (laughs) Giancarlo Esposito, supporting actor for The Mandalorian. He's fantastic. We love him. We've loved him since we first saw him in Breaking Bad. Yes, although he's not half the man that he used to be from Breaking Bad. (laughs) (laughs) He's. Let's just say he lost a lot of face in that. And speaking of Mando, Carl Weathers and Timothy Oliphant were both nominated for guest actors for that show. What? Nothing for Verna? <laughs> oh, man, that hurts, Hog. This is the way. Now, Don Cheadle got a guest actor nomination for James Road in The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I think we're a little head scratchy on that one because, uh, you know, I'm not going to doubt the his skills. But um, a small part it was. I don't think he even put on the suit. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was a real small part. But, look, I guess the uh, they loved Don. Yeah. And Charles Dance in The Crown. Well, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Courtney B. Vance for Lovecraft Country. Now, I could go on down the line with many more genre nominations mm-hmm. and it would take me quite a while to hoover up them all. So, you know. <laughs> How about John Favreau for Best Directing of a Drama Series? and two noms for him for writing for The Mandalorian. I mean, it's a standout show, and I think critically and audience uh, alike have loved that one, so not surprised by that. Do you know, it's a very rare Star Wars property I would care to go out and collect on DVD, Mm -hmm. but Mando, yeah, I'd go for that. It's solid, and it knows what it is, and it's just pitched perfectly, So, and that's a lot of it due to John. Mm. WandaVision has three nominations for Outstanding Writing for a Limited or Anthology Series or Movie. Mm -hmm. And visual effects, well, you know, obviously there's a few shows in in our genre that's going to get those, like The Nevers, Star Trek Disco, Umbrella Academy, and uh, WandaVision, Mandalorian, Lovecraft, Falcon, and the boys, all of them have got sort of nominations for those. So, you know, good luck to them all. Really tricky year for all of this. Yeah. And, you know, the ceremony will be held one way or another on September the 19th this year, Mm -hmm. so a while to go yet. And they announce those nominations via a virtual event. So (laughs) we're all actually old hands at this now, you know, virtual red carpet, Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. The comedians amongst the nominees showing up in their gym jams and yeah, <laughs> I do. It does make me feel a bit sad though because I know there's probably. I mean, a lot of those names you just read out are tried and true award nominees, but I'm sure there's some newcomers, and I do feel a bit that they'd be missing out on a bit of the glitz and glamour and red carpet, which is a bit of a shame. But um, I mean, there's some great talent, so I'm sure it's not going to be the only opportunity. And we've got to do what we've got to do. So yeah. still be good to uh, celebrate these great actors and great shows. Lots to still add to my to watch list as well. So yeah, this is one of the things about award ceremonies, and that 
look beyond all the the, the glitter and the glamour and, and the and the the frocks and the jocks and whatever the hell else they will wear out on that carpet. Um, it is actually good for that primary purpose of alerting you to stuff that you might want to watch. Exactly. And reminding you like things like Lovecraft, Lovecraft Country, uh, I never got around to watching that. And then it's just a nice little reminder that, hey, there's always some good content out there. Mm. You're never going to get to it all, but it's just sort of helping you maybe sift through and prioritise some things. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm glad that Megan pointed us towards Fear Street so we could take a <laughs> – I was going to say a stroll down it, but in this case it's a headlong screaming run. Ah! <laughs> I can't even hit any of the pitches that they can. <laughs> uh, okay, so we're going to talk about that. We've talked about Fear Street Part 1, mm-hmm. which was set in, uh, what was it, 1994? Yes, so that one is 1994. Oh, guess what? I just realised that's the first year that Zero G was on air. Oh, wow. Yeah. So while these people were getting massacred <laughs> in their in their appalling mall, we were just trundling along on Zero G. Oh, that's really nice. If only we could have stopped it. <laughs> I, I feel somehow responsible. <laughs> and you know what we were revealing back in that year, uh, Lois and Clark. Favourite for me. Oh, that was probably one of my OG series that got me into all the superhero stuff and the good genre tidbits. OG, yes. Hey, you know what? This is just a complete non sequitur. OMG, Mm. that acronym, uh, that actually dates back to 1917 as far as they can tell. Oh, wow. It was a letter written to Winston Churchill and they they're talking about the British Navy, and not, as we all think, as a modern textual mm. comment. Anyway, ripping over towards, because I feel in a fairly historical, hysterical mood today, over to Fear Street. We mm-hmm. did part one, and now we're going to talk about part two and part three today. Mm. So let's have a bit of music first. The song Carry On Wayward Song, the Kansas hit, and mm-hmm. we've heard the original on Supernatural. They often use it uh, on series recaps at the start of seasons, mm, mm. and it's become something of an anthem for the brothers Winchester. And, well, I just like it, and I particularly enjoyed the version that they sang on the Supernatural musical episode where there was a school play being put together by students, and, of course, the Winchesters have to turn up at this because it's based on the books that get written about the Winchester's adventures. Oh, wow. So then a school doesn't use it. It's a, such a deep cut. <laughs> but I thought it was appropriate because it's like school students, and that's what hmm. Fear Street is all about. Uh, hi, this is Jim Beaver. I play Bobby Singer on the TV series Supernatural, and you're listening to 3 Triple R FM Zero G, idiots. <laughs> Carry On You, Wayward Son, which is the track that we all know and love from Supernatural. And in this case, it's Vivian Amore and Alyssa Lynch riffing off a cover there for Mm. Kansas there from Supernatural, the musical. (laughs) Diegetic music at its best there because when you're doing a musical about the book, about the show, you can't get any closer than that. All right, now we are back in Fear Street, certainly a location that could use a visitation from the Brothers Winchester and also mm. probably the Scooby gang as well and Buffy and all. 
I don't know. I think our group of teens have got it kind of sorted out. They're tackling all this stuff head on. So we are, yes, of course, talking about Fear Street Trilogy. It's on Netflix. And it was a series of three movies that were released a week apart during July. So the tagline was three movies, three weeks, one killer story. Now, because we are nearing the end of July, all three films are out now. So they're all available on Netflix. So if you've not watched any or you've not finished the trilogy, they're all there waiting for you. All three films were directed by Lee Janiak. And now she also co-wrote the screenplays along with Phil Graziadeh and Kate Treefry. (laughs) Tongue twister names right there. Uh, Janiak has also worked on the Screen TV series and a thriller called Honeymoon that had Rose Leslie in it. We did cover the first Fear Street uh, a little while back and we talked a bit about how it tried to forefront a bit of representation and really leaned into the fun and gory horror, fast-paced and kind of knew what tropes it was trying to put out there and did a pretty good and fun job of taking us along on the ride. I think the rest of the trilogy is no different. All of the films are less than two hours and so that means they're great length and they really just don't waste any time faffing about, which I really appreciated because it knew exactly what its brief was and it went ahead and uh, went for it. So It is, of course, based on the Fear Street R.L. Stein books, which were teen horror books. And uh, when I told Rob originally that we were going to look at some movies based on some teen books, uh, I think you were a bit surprised by the... uh, the gore that was to come splattering into your face as you watch these, <laughs> right, Rob? Well, look, I, I didn't watch a lot of teen slasher films when I was an actual teen. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a confession. So I become more familiar with them in context of later parodies and clever riffs on the genre, like, course, you know, yeah. the Scream movies and the Cabin in the Woods and so on. Yeah. I mean, if there were zombies or vampires there, I was, I was there for it, but not for mm-hmm. the, just regular, you know, s- supernatural killers or even yeah. the regular ones. So, yeah, I found it incredibly gory, and there were some, as we say in the trade, kills um, that were quite startling. <laughs> Indeed. And uh, I will say they don't let up on that either as the movies go on. So I'll give you a little bit of an outline about what we're talking about here on Fear Street, which is also kind of known as Shady Side, which is where a lot of our action is set. So we start off with our first film, uh, small town teen horror, a bit of your slasher flick energy. Then we move to the second film that's set at a summer camp called Camp Nightwing. We are firmly in 70s territory here, lots of sunny vibes, lots of throwbacks to old camp thrillers. And then we cut to our third film, which is uh, set in a colonial town, skirted by some dark woods and gripped by some hysteric hysteria. So we have three very distinct time periods here, three very distinct aesthetics, which director Janiak really leans into and makes the most of, and also a bunch of different tropes and cliches that are kind of executed, so to speak, with a lot of fervor. It's interesting because the films all do feel quite different in their tone, but there is a distinct through line and distinct plot and story and some characters that really hold us together. And I will say too, even though the last film is pitched uh, as a 1666 colonial town 
film, we do get a bit of the 90s era wrap up as well. So just to be clear that you're not going to be left hanging in any way. Janiac wraps up the trilogy quite nicely. And in that way, it's interesting because it's really one long film broken up into three different parts. And it's all been very planned out with one story arc as we learn a bit more about the town and some of the dark history as we dig further and further. So we started our trilogy in Shadyside with a bit of a mall massacre uh, and we met some of our core characters. Namely, I'm going to call out Dina, Sam and Dina's brother, Josh. So in that film, uh, they're on the hunt to break the curse of the witch, which has cast a cloud over Shadyside for decades and decades. And now this sets in motion a series of events that require them to kind of explore and dig up more information on the curse itself and Shadyside's history, as well as its rivalry with a neighbour town called Sunnyvale, full of more upwardly mobile and ultimately not cursed townspeople. And uh, these two towns have this, yeah, rivalry that goes decades back, centuries back, and one of the towns, poor Shadyside, suffers deaths, sadness, decline, and our other Sunnyvale counterpart enjoys success and sunshine and no massacres. (laughs) So after the events of our first film, we head back to 1978 with Fear Street Part 2, the second film. We learn more about the massacre that took place there at Camp Nightwing. We learn about that from one of the survivors who might help fight the witch. And then we quickly cut to our third film in the trilogy, which is set in 1666, as mentioned before. And we learn more about the settlement called Union that would one day become Shadyside and Sunnyvale and how all this mess began. And as I said before, we do conclude back in the 1994 portion for a bit of a wrap-up and resolution Uh and uh, a bit of vanquishing, we hope. So... That's kind of the the brief of the trilogy. And I think it's not a spoiler too to say that one of the fun things about, about it is that you do see some of these characters and some of our faces, familiar faces pop up throughout. And I think that's deployed quite well oh. to a nice effect to keep things clinging together. So now you've watched the second film, Rob, our Camp Nightwing. What were your what were your immediate thoughts on that one? Well, obviously this is a big trope. In mm. horror movies, like, and probably a great reason why I never went to summer camps or anything like that <laughs> at all. You know, just no, hell no. Oh yeah, no. There's so much there that is to be avoided. First off, I thought they did a very good job of capturing the period, and you know, and this is you got to realise that this is the seventies. There's a lot of slasher movies just beginning to come out of that mm-hmm. partic- of that particular type. You've also got bedded in quite well the omen and Mm -hmm. the exorcist. And they do, you know, possession is nine-tenths of the law of the Fear Street story. And there there are several 360-degree nods of the head from direct quotes to a default to under-earthly choir practice in the Mm -hmm. soundtrack. So, you know, you've got your, your lines from those great movies and then that sort of great Jerry Goldsmith's type music that cranks up at times. Yeah. I thought what you were saying before is right on point. There's a good follow-up on the rogues gallery of villains that have featured before. Mm -hmm. And they do not forget the rules established in the first movie. Very important, the the supernatural procedure. Mm -hmm. And 
And in fact, their cross-time links, and this includes that third movie because I've watched a little bit of that, they're so very much on point that this series may just be the horror equivalent of Back to the Future. Ooh, yeah. That's what it feels like. When it comes to cool continuity, they've certainly nailed it. It's so so cool that you're trembling in fear. But (laughs) the Ginger Snaps werewolves movies did get there first, as we were saying last week. Yes. Uh, Mm -hmm. And they've recently been treated to The Witch, which is a a New England folktale from 2015. So the audiences should be prepped for this kind of thing. Uh, Robert Eggers uh, directed that one for this sort of Mm. colonial horror in the 1666 one, which is one of my favourite periods for for American horror. Set it back then. I love it. Yeah, it's so interesting because I remember you mentioned that was kind of one of your favourite periods and whereas the 70s camp, trope that for me I was that I think is probably my favorite of the three because I really and obviously and there are nods to it Stephen King is starting to become more popular and that's sort of his early heyday and so on and just you know I love the whole it stranger things vibe of kids running around uh wildly unsupervised (laughs) and there is certainly a lot of that in the 1978 film they even use Stephen King to to bond over in this one totally absolutely he's very he's like another character in there because we are of course at Camp Nightwing and the kind of central uh characters there we've got two sisters Ziggy and Cindy Cindy's this uptight camp counselor and Ziggy is a her feisty sister who doesn't play by the rules and um doesn't really get along with the other campers although all the other campers seem awful so and yeah as mentioned it sets up these great camp vibes like archery hanging at the mess hall arts and crafts bit of you know adolescent bullying all that good stuff and um threatening to to set people on fire you know kid kid stuff right and a pretty uh, interesting menagerie of uh, wildlife as well, which I'm, I'm not sure how summer camps work, but that seemed pretty interesting to me. And, uh, of course, uh, the healthy, quote, unquote, rivalry between the two towns of Sunnyvale and Shadyside, they lean into that even more in that camp story as well. You know, of course, it's not just all fun and games because mayhem has to break out at some point. And uh, it's very much about the sisters trying to survive the axe and the curse of the witch. Mm. It's it is particularly gory because you axed for it. At one point, they start comparing blood stains on their shirts, yes. and the lines like, "It's okay, it's okay, it's not mine." It's insert long list of names. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it doesn't pull punches or pull axes. Absolutely, because oh. there's some gory stuff. They really, I mean, but it's so over the top as well. I think there's maybe only one scene in that one where I was like, "Oh, this is a." bit much even for me uh which it, it does sort of it's not it's not exactly for the faint of heart let's say that the, the 1978 one it's um physically closer to where the the 17th century witch was hanged because it's mm-hmm. getting a, a camp nearby and in, and in fact her extensive underground lair still exists in the 70s in order for the teens to stumble upon and you know yeah you know they're going to wander lethally around it and <laughs> Absolutely. And as they unwillingly explore the cavernous labyrinth, it gets a bit dissenty in terms of Neil Marshall's terrifying 2005 spelunking movie without actually going there, which mm-hmm. I thought was really kind of cool that they managed to get the, the terror there. I know I've just given away a little bit of a plot spoiler, but forgive me. You'll you'll recognise these tropes as they smack you in the face as you walk around a corner. 
Absolutely. There's, I mean, Janiak is definitely clearly a fan of all of the kinds of uh, films that are inspiration for these three movies. And she really, like I said before, deploys all of the different tropes and cliches that she wants to include artfully. And she just like kind of throws them out there. Some of them stick better than others, but it is very much a bit of a bingo for horror fans, which I'm not against. I love it. I think that those kinds of movies, the pastiche is just as fun as, you know, this is a cutting edge new concept because what are new concepts anymore anyway? When you have a cutting edge as sharp as this... Yeah. You can stitch all sorts of body parts together from different movies. And, and, <laughs> exactly. And so they do. Let's have a track here. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we were saying last time we were looking at the first part of Fear Street that you could fairly take a David Bowie song to define any decade. Yes. <laughs> and so there is one of them, another bit of diegetic music in this. In fact, there's a lot of in-movie produced music in this series yeah. that actually is hilarious at some points. Yeah, I actually think I mentioned when we covered the first film that some of the needle drops weren't as great as they could have been in the 90s one. I think the 70s one, they really start to nail their use of music and that continues on into the third movie as well. I was happy to see that the music really started to hit more as we went on. So, Mr Bowie's Moon Age Daydream. This is Neil Gaiman. It's well past 2000 AD, but Tharg still listens to Zero G. Yes, that was, of course, David Bowie with Moon Age Daydream. And we played that because it appears in the Fear Street trilogy, uh, which we are covering here today on Zero G. While there is a lot of really great tracks in there from both the 90s and 70s, there is a great score. We played a track from that earlier in the show from Marco Beltrami, and he especially starts to lean into bit more of the horror build up and then horror kind of release in that third film as well with the score, which I thought was actually really well done Mm. once we get to a bit more of the pointy end of things, so to speak. So we did talk, we covered the first film extensively a couple of shows back and I've talked a little bit about the second film, which is set in a summer camp in the seventies. I do think for me, that was maybe the strongest film, but Let's talk a little bit about the third film in the trilogy. No spoilers, of course, because I know, Rob, you haven't gotten to the end of the trilogy yet and I don't want to spoil anything for anyone. But uh, the third film is set in 1666 and it's set in the settlement of Union, which would later become Shadyside and Sunnyvale. And it's basically everyone's just trying to get along and be homogenous and anyone who's different is immediately cast as a sinner. The huge, the huge that you find in this kind of film and this kind of trope. So there is the uh, buttoned up townspeople, there's a pastor, there's a bit of toxic masculinity, there's religious fervor, and then all of this kind of combines into a bit of a witch hunt hysteria, which is kind of the direction we were always going to go in. It does create a bit of a decent atmosphere. I think you probably would have seen that already from the little bit that you've seen, Rob, lots of moody shots and saturated pictures of fields with sunlight peeking through the wheat and all of that kind of thing. But I will say um, it does actually lean into that 
sort of film kind of homage very well. And this does mean that it also starts out a bit more grim than the other two, which were kind of a bit more fun and a bit more silly. Uh, the start of the 1666 gets pretty hectic, actually. There's one scene that was particularly gory in my mind. So, yeah, we've got this great heavy atmosphere. And then, of course, we find out more about the origin story of the curse, which is what we've been wanting to know more about throughout the whole trilogy and what happened back then that is influencing uh, the present day, which is in this case the 90s, and uh, the teen protagonists in Shady Side. So, what I will mention is that half of the film is it's set in that 1666 where we learn a bit more, and then we do cut back to 1994 where we've still got some mysteries to solve. And so, we do get a resolution of that time period as well, which was great. I think it's roughly half the film for each, and that worked quite well. Uh, to talk a little bit about some of the characters, the uh, the cast uh, still remain to be relative unknowns or the sort of people breaking out into, into films, apart from a couple of notable exceptions. So I mentioned some of our key players that were set up in the first film, Kiana Madeira as Dina and Olivia Welsh as Samantha and Benjamin Flores Jr. as Dina's brother, Josh. And we also have Ashley Zuckerman, who's Australian, as uh, Sheriff Nick Good as well. So I will mention him too. And as we move into the second and third film, the summer camp and then the colonial times, we get some additional characters that I'll call out. We've got Sadie Sink playing Ziggy, one of the sisters at the summer camp, Emily Wright as Cindy, the other sister, and then Gillian Jacobs, who we know and love from Community, playing C. Berman in the present time of the 90s as well. So she kind of joins the gang under duress somewhat. (laughs) Of course, we've got a lot of other players as well. But one of the fun things is in the 1666 version, uh, we do get to see, I don't think this is a spoiler, some of the actors that we've come to know playing characters in that time period as well. So that actually provides a pretty nice connection with the other films uh, rather than just having a whole bunch of new people to worry about and keep track of. It must be in uh, the US Americans' genes because I imagine that all of these actors were appearing on stage as little ones in Thanksgiving pantomimes. <laughs> so here they are in their, you know, their pilgrim sort of yep. <laughs> their bonnets and things. Yep. I, I like, by the way, recurring characters. We, we mm. talked about the rogues gallery of villains. I mm. also like that the hanging tree yes. is in the mall. Yes. Yeah. You know, that's uh, it's a deep cut. <laughs> yeah. Again, we've got these great settings that we're really making use of, like the mall, the summer camp. There was a high school. We've also got this colonial town, which is it's kind of its own horror trope in itself, right? Like yeah. if we're even thinking of like the crucible, so on and so forth. Yeah, we're really just leaning into some of these evil hotspots, which I think is actually a really fun way to do things. So, yeah, overall, I think... I really enjoyed this trilogy. I I went in kind of thinking, um, you know, just thinking it could just be a bit of fluff. I mean, it really, it makes the best use of neon. I think the (laughs) whole branding around the trilogy is great and it's definitely leaning into the kind of neon energy because all the covers of the books were, had all these kind of puffed out neon headings and things. So it's kind of very much in that aesthetic, which is pretty cool. Personally, I liked the second film, the 70s film, the most, I think. The camp vibes were really good. I think the pacing was good in that, and it did flip me a bit 
similar to the first film where I went in being like, oh, what's this doing? Am I going to like this? And then by the end, it had really swept me up and taken me along for the ride, which was great. I think I will call out Sadie Sink is exceptional in that film. I thought she was really engaging, very enjoyable to watch and kind of stood out a lot and made that portion really fun. And so I'm keen to see her in more, not just season four of Stranger Things, hopefully, but she was really fun energy in that. The 1666 for me was actually opposite to you, Rob, a bit less up my street. Um, I liked the pastiches of the slasher and the retro horror stuff more and the witch hysteria stuff slightly less, but I don't know why. I think maybe I was just more for a bit of fun silliness and then kind of the dark religious fervor stuff was just a bit much. Not saying it wasn't done well, but I was like, oh, this is a bit depressing and frustrating really, and I just wanted to head back to the getting, you know, sliced up back at the summer camp. I'm looking for a big, big twist in that third movie. Mm. What? Yeah, okay. Not not just a simple throw her into the pond, burn her, she's a witch. <laughs> well, obviously that's not yeah, practical yeah. to do in that order. <laughs> and I hope that they don't – I'm maybe I'm an optimist. I want them to see some redemption for the witch, Sarah, fear, mm. for cursing mm. them. You know, I mean, there's. it looks to me like there's going to be a pretty good reason for her doing that. And, and look, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not asking for a good omens ending to the third film where she where she <laughs> goes to the pyre or whatever and packs her skirts with gunpowder, you know. But, <laughs> and also I think I'm looking at it because there's some clues that to me and because I haven't seen it, so don't say anything. No, no, of course. <laughs> I want to hear theories. This is this is great. Look, there's some clues to me, like there is a mm. Stephen King kind of kind of twist to it. Like mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's Stephen King meteor aliens. But it's meteor aliens. No, I don't know. <laughs> you know, because there's these strange critters and blobby things and stuff, and I'm wondering. It's got me thinking about that. That's also part of the fun, right? It's giving us enough. And, yeah. you know, obviously as people who've seen a lot of this kind of fun genre stuff, it is really great to speculate on where's the direction going to be. Like I know there's a lot in here that's not new, quote, unquote, but I do think it, some of the the representation is great. I think some of the things it's doing to try to be a little bit different is good, but it's still relying on some of those, you know, stereotypes, stereotypical stories and situations that we know and love and, and like to watch play out on screen, to be honest. So I'm keen for when you finish the last film to hear what you think when you're done. Look, this would be a superior slasher genre production back in the 70s or the 80s Mm -hmm. it would Mm -hmm. would really go hey this is really good it's got lots of meta themes and it ties back together if it had been done back then wow and actually it's pretty damn good now too i was surprised at at how good it was especially the character interactions and i don't mean the physical ones that end at knife and axe points although (laughs) although given that (laughs) uh and it is a very very gory just Watch out for that. They lean into it pretty much all every time. And yeah. So there is that too as a caveat or a cravat if we go back far enough <laughs> in time. Uh, it is on, yes, it is exactly. on Netflix and all three have, have dropped, bloodily dropped, drip by drip. Um, <laughs> yes, the, the wet thud of a severed arm. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yes, they're all on Netflix, available to watch now. That is the Fear Street trilogy, uh, part one, set in the 90s, part two, set in the 70s, and part three, set in the 1600s. Mm. 
Let's have another track from the soundtrack album, Marco Beltrami, uh, because I think this gives you a nice feel for the 17th century one. It's called Reflection. And just as he's used instruments of the period and forms of the period, like that, the 70s one, I felt like I was listening to the Back to the Future soundtrack at one stage. Mm-hmm. And this one gives you this very, well, he has a fiddle around with it, I shall say, and it does give you a good feeling for it. Reflection. Hi. I'm Lindsay Morgan. And I'm Reg Morgan. Uh, no, we're actually Colin and Cameron Cairns. Writers, directors of 100 Bloody Acres, and you're listening to Zero G. They're not psycho killers. They're just community radio broadcasters. Is that all right? <laughs> <laughs> there are days when the line dividing the two... <laughs> <laughs> Blurs. Wavers, yes. <laughs> oh, what a particularly bloody series of movies, Megan. <laughs> I know, I know. I Look, I will say I think the second one is the most gory. Um, but, it, it's yeah, it doesn't pull any punches with that, so just be be a bit aware of that. But it's, it's all ripping good fun as well, so. This is Emmy Award for that. <laughs> In the category of most gory... <laughs> A category, actually, is what we're talking about there on Zero G here today. Mm. All right, so we don't really have time today to get up to speed on the now-finished Loki series, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. has done its spectacular best to be surreally good. Mm. I think that the six episodes of it... Yes, six episodes. have, Mm -hmm. ...have been exceptional. Not always the same, I think, in overall quality, but all differently. Poor, yes. I think. They've been, yes. they've been different, each one. Mm. Uh, I thought the penultimate episode of the series had a lot more fun things in it. Agree, yeah. But the final episode had a lot of deep cuts in it in terms of Marvel Comics characters. One in particular, who I will not mention yet in case you haven't seen it. Mm. Uh, But that was a really big revelation. Unfortunately, signposted because we knew which actor had been chosen to play the character. And when we saw him, it's like, oh, I know who you are. Yes, yes. So not as big a surprise as as it could have been left to be. But, you know, this is such a hard thing to call, isn't it? Spoilers Mm. and how do you do that? No, it's it's. True. I think you want to have some of the fun of speculating uh, about what a show is going to do. But on the other hand, sometimes it's just not realistic to avoid that stuff. And I agree. I think the penultimate episode was a lot of fun and certainly pacey and action-packed. And the last one seemed to really be, okay, we're going to set some stuff up here. We are going to throw you some information for you to digest and then go away and think about and wonder about what we're going to do with this. And I thought that was pretty cool. At one stage, and and this is a bit of a spoiler if you haven't seen uh, the second last episode of Loki, so I'll give you that mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. That, that all is all about showing you lots of different Loki variants. Yes. And that was just done with such glorious purpose. It was amazing. And the casting in that and the exchanges in that, it was exactly what I was after. It was funny and also kind of poignant. Well, they try in the Marvel series and in the other interpretations too, you know, like Sony and so on, whenever they're doing their Mm -hmm. Spider-Man movies, 
and the X Men on the X Men movies over in Fox and so on, all back under one roof now. And yes, but, but yes. they do have fun with the comic book costumes. We've seen it in WandaVision where they yeah. ended up as Halloween costumes. You know, mm-hmm. how many times has Hugh Jackman joked about yellow spandex when he's playing Logan? <laughs> yeah. You know. And yeah. so when we got classic Loki costume from the from mm. the comic books, which is really mm. let's but let's face it, it's really daggy. Richard it, Yeah. Richard E. Grant wore that so bloody well that he That to me. I didn't know he was going to be in it. And then when I saw him, I was like, oh, that vision, that image is perfect. <laughs> he he sold that. And, oh, yeah. my God, that was a great moment there. And did you catch Chris Hemsworth's cameo? No. Ah. <laughs> That's all right. This is a spoiler. We'll go with a spoiler here. I'll tell you. Okay, it, let's do it. It's the voice of Thro- Frog Fall. They pan down. A hillside. There's a jar that you see Molnir sitting on the left-hand side of the screen. Mm-hmm. And then there's a jar with a frog mm-hmm. dressed in a Thor costume jumping up and down, <laughs> <laughs> trying to get to Molnir, but he can't because. Yes, I've seen. Yes, I remember that. That's that's lightning quick. You have lightning quick. You have to be paying attention to see that. I was looking for something like that. I was hoping that Frog Four would be a, a Loki, be a variant in there somewhere. Yeah, and you know that's like Pet Avengers stuff. I'm a big fan of yeah. <laughs> all that craziness. That's a that's a it was that's a, a, There was a, another deep cut in there, um, and I know we're, we're running out of time, so we'll get for it very quickly. I just wanted to mention. When they did the um, the Philadelphia experiment ship, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and I, instantly I knew what it was. Yeah, and there's a, they had an amazing sequence of that again. Spoilers, yeah. Um, where the ship appears in this time place, wherever it is, this yeah. uh, this nexus, the void, the void. That's right, the void. Where where the ship appears in the void, and they've just come out of there using their uh, invisibility cloaking device experiment from the from world war 2 and the ships yeah. there and the monsters coming yeah. for it and they open up with their guns on the yeah. monster and if you look on the foredeck of the ship there's a sailor who points to open up with the guns and it's just like a recruiting poster from world war 2 and he holds one hand up in a very dramatic pose and off they go oh my god that was so good and yeah. and another Deep cut, which could have been deeper. We see a helicopter with Thanos written on the on the the tail oh. boom. It's in the wreckage in the uh, in the city. Right, interesting. A, I miss that too. That's a deep comic book reference to a silly bit of stuff, <laughs> merchandise and stuff. It could have been deeper if the helicopter had no rotor blade, because mm-hmm. we see Thanos wielding that rotor blade in the Avengers movies <laughs> oh, wow big weapon that he's got <laughs> so if it didn't have a rotor blade it would be an even deeper cut <laughs> and there's dozens of things like that in that whole yeah. episode you know but you know we won't we won't go into that any further today apart from but i think that was for me the episode and i know it's fan service and stuff and but it was entirely appropriate in context of what we were doing with this show no Absolutely. I think this kind of premise lends itself to throwing as many Easter eggs at the wall that you can, Mm. and that's part of the fun. Mm. Yes, especially when you're dealing with the god of mischief, Loki. Exactly. Oh, oh, the back, like it's my heart is just 
he's really taken me on a journey. And that's a lot of Tom Hiddleston as well, really selling and embodying that character for 10 years and just taking me to a place where I'll just cry tears for that poor man. Anyway. And he's manages to shed most of his uh, glorious purpose costumes along the way, the the horned helmets, mm-hmm. the, the, you know, the Asgardian techno-majory costumes and stuff. And he's basically down to trousers, a, a, a rinky-dink mm. shirt, a tie and suspenders. Yeah, That's yeah I mean, he's, he's in his civvies. I, I kind of am into that. I like that choice. With his sleeves rolled up, he is the epitome of every stage actor doing a minimalist production. Mm. And you can see it when, when Tom Hiddleston moves across these environments in the show. Yeah. He does that with so much stagecraft. Yeah. He's, he's clearly very talented. Mm. And a hard worker. And he's just wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> and so is everybody else in, in, in that. Owen Wilson. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. I, I have to say it's, it exceeded my expectations. And my expectations were high. Yeah, I can see how it, it feeds into future, maybe even Avengers movies, but def- yeah. definitely the Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Yeah, yeah. You can see the building blocks from WandaVision and this and kind of the direction that we're heading with Phase 4, yeah. and I think that that's quite clever. And we know, okay, so the rest of the year we've got another Spider-Man movie. We've got mm-hmm. uh, the Shang-Chi movies. Yes, movie. and... And the Eternals, I think, too. And the Eternals. So we've got um, some Kung Fu magic coming up. We've got cosmic level stuff happening. Uh, Mm -hmm. When we get to the Doctor Strange movie, there will be more cosmic level stuff happening. So you can sort of see this is more of a a pushing out there kind of phase. Yeah. And all kicked off, strangely enough, by Black Widow, which is the first real phase four one. But as we said, these series, I think, are leading into it anyway. So. Yeah, agree. Mm. Wow, Loki. Now that's <laughs> available on Disney Plus. Yeah. And all the episodes have dropped. Oh. <laughs> I, I can't wait for the What If series, the animated one, where they really, yeah. really cut loose with stuff in there. Oh. <laughs> okay. You know, the trouble is, of course, there's so much of this Marvel product mm. that we can just step from one to the back of another like stones across a river. Mm-hmm, but we mm-hmm. must not do that because we are zero G and we look at lots of things. Yes. Hmm. So let's go out with a track. Megan, you ha- did you have another track from um, uh, Fear Street? Mm-hmm. Yes, I did. I picked because Pixies is one of my favourite bands and I think it's probably one of the favourite bands of the whoever the music supervisor was on the Fear Street trilogy because they've got no less than three Pixies tracks that appear. So I picked one that rounds out our trilogy and I thought it could round out our show today. So we'll play that. It is uh, Mr. Greaves and it is by the Pixies from Fear Street. Mm. Okay. Well, that's about it for Zero G for today. Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. Thank you to Kayla Larson, our podcaster. And indeed, thank you to Joe Brunetic. Coming up next with the terribly difficult task of following Zero G with Astral Glamour. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.